Hebrews chapter 6. It's a very sobering passage. In light of Communion Sunday, in light of what we've been learning through Paul's letter to the Romans, I thought it appropriate that we spend some time here this morning reflecting on what we've been learning in this passage that causes us to ponder some very serious things. We would do well to listen very carefully as God, through His Word, speaks to us concerning a spiritual condition of the soul whereby it is impossible for salvation to take place. Spiritual condition of the soul whereby it's impossible for someone to be saved. And I want to begin this morning by reading the first eight verses for us of chapter 6. And then we'll begin our time together. The writer to the Hebrews says this, Therefore, leaving elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have, been, have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. Let's bow together. Father, as we approach your words here, We are dependent upon you to help us understand. We know that without your gift of illumination, we would simply pursue the godless desires of our own sinful hearts. And so we pray that if we be here this morning spiritually blind, spiritually in a place where we do not know you, cause us then to see you clearly, see this truth so that we might live. Use the truth in each of us to impel us to live to your honor, to your glory, for your majesty, the only God who can save the soul. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And it's in His name that we even approach our time this morning. Amen. 
As I mentioned, this is a very sobering, serious passage. And it is sobering for us simply because there is a spiritual condition in which a person can be, in which salvation is impossible. Over the last several weeks, we have been studying in Romans, particularly spending our time in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10. And last Lord's Day, we began to look at Romans 10 verses 16 and 17 and the reality of how someone is saved. They are saved by hearing the truth of the gospel, hearing with ears that will heed the gospel, and faith is produced, and that faith is what is necessary and unto believe upon Jesus Christ. And yet the Jews believed in all kinds of basic things about religion. They were good about doing the basics of religious activity. Good, and all of that is good as a foundation, if you will, for moving toward a real relationship with Jesus Christ. But those alone are never enough. Religious activities, moral life, doing things philanthropically, all of those things may be good things, but they are never enough in order to save you. It's, a, it's like going into some kind of uh, museum and looking at the pictures and seeing the grandeur of, of the pictures that are in a museum and thinking that in those is the real thing. That the pictures themselves are the real thing. And in a spiritual sense, it's looking at the religious activities, the religious things, and thinking that in them, in the beauty of them, and in the ritual of them, and in the doing of them, there is somehow an idea that in them is real salvation. The writer of Hebrews is dealing with the same thing. He is dealing with those who are very religious. And he describes them with understanding or with, with this understanding of six specific doctrinal truths that every good Jew would have learned, every good Jew would have seen, every good Jew would have participated in since they grew up in a Jewish home under Old Testament teaching. And he lists them for us in verses two, 1 and 2 in chapter 6. They, they are, they're the elementary things. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again. Here's the first one, a foundation of repentance from the dead. That's repentance from dead works. That's what he's talking about. In other words, that one needed to turn from evil if one is going to be acceptable to God. That's what their idea was. That you have to just separate yourself from doing evil things and therefore God would accept you. God cannot look on sin. God sees every sin in a person. And sin is the very thing that you're going to have to turn from if you're going to be acceptable to God. Well, that's all great and fine, but that will never in itself save you. And so the Jew learned about that. They learned about the basics about repentance from dead works. And they also learned about faith toward God, it says. Works and of faith toward God. In verse 1, every good Jew had a belief in God. That was a basic truth. That was a basic practice. That was a foundational doctrine. No one can have a relationship with God if you don't believe in God. Makes sense. It's logically true. 
But that's basic. That's foundational. Belief in the existence of God does you no good towards salvation because it isn't enough to save. It's basic. It's foundational. It's elementary. Every good Jew learned about ceremonial cleanings. You notice in verse 2 of instruction about washings. They, they learned about ceremonial cleansing and purity in, a, in an outward sense before God. They learned the basics about the laying on of hands and a sacrifice. The need for a substitution. Something had to die in order for your sins to be paid for. But those are basic things. They're like the illustration. They're pictures hanging on the wall, if you will. They're, 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 they're portraits of what is true, but they're not what will save. There's no salvation in them. They're foundational truths that lead you to the real thing, and the real thing is Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, and they learned about resurrection of the dead, that God had ordained an eternal judgment. You see that at the end of verse 2. They learned about resurrection from the dead, that there was a time when all men will rise from the dead, some to eternal salvation, some to eternal destruction, depending on what your reality is and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And these are all basic doctrines. These are beginning things, if you will. They, these are foundational. They're, they're pictures, but they're not the reality for salvation. They were shadows of the real thing. And so the writer of Hebrews is exhorting those to whom he's writing and to all of us here who are reading it this day. He's exhorting them to leave all of that basic stuff behind. That basic stuff as a means of salvation. He's not saying it's not necessary for anything. Don't, don't just get rid of it altogether. He's not saying that. But rather as a means for salvation. Move past that to the real thing. Go past the idea of works to the real thing, which is Jesus Christ. Get away from the pictures and embrace the real thing. And here's what he's saying. You're standing on the edge of faith. You're standing at the precipice, but you haven't embraced the real thing. And if you don't go on, if you don't exercise faith in Jesus Christ, you will enter into a condition in which it is impossible to save you. There is a great danger. It's a serious place to be as a person. Someone who very religious. Someone who spiritual. Someone who has a belief in God. Someone who has all kinds of different instructions about how they should live and what will get them into the kingdom of God in some kind of works kind of way and yet they have not embraced Christ. That's a very serious place to be in because you're at the precipice of unsavability. There are many like that today. My guess is there's probably even some here in this room. Maybe some who have even come here for years, attached themselves to all kinds of basics. You believe in God? You know that you do good things and not evil, at least by your own standard, according to how you weigh yourself to everybody else? You confess your wrongness, come to the church, do you believe in resurrection? You see the truth about eternal punishment, you know that's true, you even look like a Christian, 
But when you look in the mirror, your life produces no spiritual fruit. And yet you deceivingly believe that you're saved. That's a great danger. It's a serious problem. And the solution is to leave all of that behind as a means of salvation and truly come to Christ. That's the solution. But the question is, how do they do that? That's the question. How do you do that? Well, verse 3 gives the answer really in a nutshell. In an overall sense, verse 3 says, And this we shall do if God permits. There's the answer. We learned it in Romans chapter 9. This is the answer to how someone does it in the ultimate sense. The only way for someone to go from the place of intellectual belief, a belief in those things, that, those are the, that the pictures are the way to salvation, to a real faith in Christ is through the agency of God's sovereignty. We are face to face here again in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, with the sovereignty of God. Now, there are some implications that I want to just highlight before we move on. One is this. God governs every salvation. God governs every salvation. In other words, God has the final say. Whether a person is saved or whether a person is condemned is all under the reality of a sovereign, holy God over it all. No one makes it to holiness unless God permits it. You say, how do you know that? Let me show you that in Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. Just really quickly. We, we, we know this already from our study of Romans, but this is a reminder for us as we think about our time in communion. Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in verse 14. Actually, verse 15. He says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Why? Because he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Emotionalism won't save you. Esau was very emotional. You say, why did you bring us here? That's a very serious passage as well. Why would you bring us here? Because here's the point of those verses. Esau was rejected by God. Esau was rejected by God. Why? Because he had so profaned, he had so rejected the grace of God in his life that God had granted him so much. He had so rejected that for his own selfish good that he was no longer even able to repent even though he had an emotional experience with tears and looked for it with great sincerity. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul said in Romans, quoting from the Old Testament, God had completely forsaken Esau, and there was no hope. God's patience was over with him. Now listen, this is very important. 
Beware of becoming like an Esau. Why? Because God is sovereign over salvation and he is not obligated to grant repentance to anyone. God is not obligated to grant repentance to you. So implication number one of that truth in verse 3 of chapter 6 is that God governs all salvation. God governs it all. Implication number two is this, bringing someone from being unsaved to saved is all God's grace and not bringing someone from being saved to or being unsaved to saved is all God's righteous judgment. Let me say that again. Someone going from being in a position of unsaved to saved is all because of God's grace. And someone going from a position or not going from a position of unsaved to saved is all because God is sovereign in His judgment. Why is that true? Because we're all completely depraved by nature, right? We're all guilty before a holy God. God does not owe us any grace to have any kind of victory over the rebellion that is against Him. So if God leaves us in our rebellion, He's righteous and just to do so. He is not obligated to save us at all. We are guilty by nature. We are guilty by doing, by deed, and therefore we deserve only punishment. So, if we sit here this morning in a condition of saved before God because we have embraced Jesus Christ by faith, it's not because you did it, it's because of God's grace. You are saved by grace, it says. You're saved by grace. And if God chooses not to save, He is not hindering some inherent good nature in some person in order to seek out God and find God. No, He is simply and justly leaving that person in their spiritually dead condition whereby they deserve exactly what they are receiving. So if any of us have any desire for Christ, it is completely the work of grace. For without that, there is no repentance. There's a third implication from verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 6, and that is this. Sometimes, sometimes God allows what He hates. Sometimes God allows what He hates so that His glory is magnified and accomplished. Sometimes God allows what he hates so that his glory is magnified and actually accomplished. In other words, God doesn't save all even though he calls all men to be saved. God doesn't save all even though he calls all to be saved. I think we can get a very clear example of this. This idea of God allowing what he hates in order to glorify and magnify what he is accomplishing through the death of Jesus Christ. Right? Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 says that God hates murder. God hates murder. God hates it. Thou shalt not murder. That's what it says. And yet, in Acts chapter 4... In verse 27 and 28, when the church is being started and the apostles are out doing their thing, it says this, For truly in this city 
This is Peter preaching. Truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Peter preaching to the people, talking about what God has done. There are people in the city who are gathered against Jesus, whom you did anoint. Talking about God. God allowed it to happen, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and along with the peoples of Israel. There's the group. All of this gang of people who came, as we saw last week in John chapter 18, came to arrest Jesus Christ in the garden. All of these people God appointed to do whatever your hand, God, and your purpose predestined to occur. Now what happened with Jesus according to the predetermined, predestined plan of God? He was murdered. But God, you hate murder. Yes, but sometimes I allow things to happen for my glory and the accomplishment of my purposes. What Herod and Pontius Pilate and the shouting crowds were doing was all predetermined to occur by God. And what they were doing was sinful. They were murdering. God hates murder. And yet he allowed the murder of his son so that His glory might be seen through the salvation of those whom He chooses to save through His Son. So there's infinitely wise and holy reasons for God to allow His only begotten Son to die. And in the same way, there are infinitely wise and holy reasons for why He might not permit someone to be saved. So with that in mind, let's look again at Hebrews chapter 6 and what it says. Because these people knew the basics. They had a belief in God. They had a belief in religious activity. They had embraced the basics of Christianity. They were intellectual believers. But they hadn't truly embraced Jesus Christ. They still loved the picture That was their means of salvation. And they were standing on the edge of faith. They're standing on the edge. They need to believe. They're not believing. And without God's sovereign hand, they'll never believe. And if they don't believe, they can't be saved. Why? Verses 4 through 6 tell us. And again, this is a frighteningly serious text. Because, it says here, because, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since... They again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now here's the question that I want us to be asking this morning. When is repentance impossible? When is repentance impossible? What is the situation or what is the condition in which repentance is impossible? It's really a scary thought, isn't it? I mean, it's a frightening thought. Repentance being impossible. And I think because of the soberness of that thought, many have tried to to do some kind of 
special kind of interpretive gymnastics to try to soften what this text is trying to say. But the situation is clear. Someone has uplifting religious experiences. That's the idea. That's the people we're talking about. Even some have received huge blessings from their so-called religious experiences. But then stunningly, stunningly, they turn their back. They fall away. And in doing so, they bring open shame upon Christ through crucifying him over and over and over and over again. Now, I want us to take some time to look at these five privileges that these people have. But I want to do that by focusing on four important terms that the writer of Hebrews puts here. Four important terms. The term enlightened, verse 4. The term taste, in verse 4 and 5. Partakers, in verse 4. And the word fall away, in verse 6. Those four words, enlighten, taste, partakers, and fall away. First, it says, they have once been enlightened. Now, I don't want us to get confused by that word. It's used again in chapter 10, verse 32. And it simply means there in chapter 10, verse 32, and here in chapter 6, in verse 4, it means to give light or to bring light upon or to, to illumine. That's what it means. To, to be enlightened means to simply have light shined upon. And, and, and it simply means to bring greater understanding, to give greater information to a current situation where someone might be ignorant. Right? There's no clear indication from the, from the grammar or from what is here that, that enlightened there means salvation. There's no indication in, in any of it in the context or in the grammar that it means salvation. These people have had the light of the gospel brought to their hearing. That's the idea. They've had information brought to them. It's like what's said in Romans. How are they here without a preacher? They've had the gospel proclaimed to them brought to their hearing. And yet we know by both the physical experience in our own time, as well as in our study of Romans that we've been going through, we know full well that just because the gospel is spoken and just because people hear it in an audible way or in a sign language kind of way or however they hear the gospel doesn't mean that you're going to get saved. We know that. To be enlightened is a great blessing from God. To have the gospel spoken to you is a massive blessing from God. To hear the gospel is a wonder of God's grace upon your life. But simply hearing the gospel cannot and should not be equated with salvation. Cannot. These people had heard the gospel. They had once been enlightened. They had been mentally aware of the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of their own sinfulness, the truth of the reality of God's holiness and their need for a Savior. They'd been enlightened to all of that. They were exposed to the light of Christ. In fact, Matthew 4, verse 16 says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. You see, that's the idea. They were enlightened. In other words, Jesus came fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah and those people were enlightened with the gospel. They heard the truth, but that doesn't mean they were all saved. 
And so here in Hebrews chapter 6, they had heard the gospel, they were enlightened, but they didn't embrace Christ by faith. They simply were hanging on to the shadow. I don't need Jesus. I believe in God already. Danger. Warning bells should be going off. Danger. That's the first word, enlightened. The second is this word, tasted, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and in verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God. Tasted. They tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the good word of God and the powers to come, it says. What does tasted mean? What does tasted mean? Because obviously we, we know what's coming. We know it's impossible to renew them to repentance. So what does tasted mean? Well, first it says that they tasted of the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? The heavenly gift is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. It's the free gift of God to all men. That's the heavenly gift. These people tasted the gospel. It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews is saying what he just said. You've been enlightened. They tasted it, but they didn't eat it. They were tasting it. Tasting doesn't necessarily include eating. I love it when my wife bakes. I like to taste everything. Doesn't mean I eat it. Well, to be perfectly honest, I do eat it. (laughs) That's not what it means here. When I taste something, I can then, after tasting it, refuse to take it in. I can refuse it. So the people described here, and all those like them today... They are those who have a certain degree of intellectual understanding of the mercy of God. And know God is being merciful. They're they're kind of like those in Matthew 13. They're the stony ground people in the parable of the soils. The stony ground. Where the seed is sown and they receive it with joy immediately. They receive it, but because there's no root, they spring up quickly. They look good really quick. There's all kinds of potential growth in them really quick. They look really good, but there's no root. And when the sun gets hot, when the, when the troubles come, when the, when the persecution is heated up and people start to get after them because their new claim of being, quote unquote, a Christian, they fade away. They die. They have no root. These people are like that. They've seen the powers of the gospel change the lives of those around them they've seen the power of the gospel in people they know who who they know in the from all the bad days they've seen the change they've seen the difference they've tasted and intellectually understood the good word spoken to them but they've not embraced it themselves you see they tasted all the blessings of god through the gospel they heard the truth Intellectually embraced it, saw friends and family who were changed, but they're standing right on the edge of faith. They won't commit. They don't want it. They've been enlightened. They've tasted. 
then third, it says they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now it seems to get a little more confusing, doesn't it? I thought the Holy Spirit was only for Christians. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers is metakos in the original language. It's translated partners. Partners. The word there, partakers, is partners as it's translated in Luke chapter 5 verse 7. They're, they're partners. It simply means that, that this was a group of people who had seen and experienced the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Uh, they, were, they were there. It doesn't mean a possession of the Holy Spirit. It means an association with the things of the Spirit. It doesn't mean they possessed the Holy Spirit themselves. It means they were just around when the Holy Spirit was working. It could be said of that, of all those who were there on that first day at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, they were all partakers of the Holy Spirit, and yet all of them didn't receive and weren't, didn't have possession of the Holy Spirit. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that it's possible to have an association with the Holy Spirit. It's possible to share in what the Holy Spirit is doing and not be saved. In fact, if you're not saved and you're sitting here in this church, you're in association with the Holy Spirit right now. Because this is an act, this is a gathering, this is a a family of God by which the Holy Spirit indwells. We may not see Him, but we know He's moving. You're in association with the Holy Spirit. Go back for a moment to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, said, God was bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So he was talking about when the apostles were out doing their thing. They're doing this thing. They're confirming what's going on. They're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit happening. It's happening They heard the word of God. God gave witness to his word through miracles and things that were happening. Anytime we see somebody come to know Jesus Christ by faith and their life has changed, we're witnessing a miracle. It's a resurrection from spiritual dead life to spiritual living life. And you see that you're in association with it. You're right there. You're actually in association with the Holy Spirit and what he's doing. But you can be there and not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit an unsaved person all the while being right there next to those who are saved and then lastly look what it says and then have fallen away have fallen away sounds really good you get really excited when you read verse 4 you read oh they got all this oh they've been enlightened oh they've been partakers oh they've tasted oh wow there's all this good going on and then you hit verse 6 and it's like what and then they've fallen away this is the only place this word is used in the entire new testament the only place Long Greek word for that called hapax legomenon. It's the only place, you know, the one place it's used. If they have fallen away, it's impossible, it says, to renew them to repentance. If 
they've fallen away, repentance is impossible. Well, who are these? Well, these are those who have turned their back on the living God. These are like Esau. These are those who are like Esau, those whom Peter described as apostates. They're not true Christians. It's impossible for them to come to true repentance. Why? Because they stand in agreement with those who crucified Christ. That He should be killed. That He isn't God. That He was a blasphemer. That He isn't the true one. That's what they're doing. You say, well, what does all this mean? Well, here's what it means in a nutshell. Here's what it means in a nutshell. If a person has been brought to the verge of salvation... They're at that pinnacle. They're religious. They, they do things. They, they think they're good. They think they're right with God. They've been brought to that place through the light of the gospel shining on them. They've heard the good word of God and seen the power of God on display in the lives of those whom God has changed through the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. They've seen that in action because those people's lives are changed. They've been under this immense blessing of God. The gospel coming to them. Their eyes seeing all of this. God is right there in front of them. And he, they've seen and, and they profess to say that that's real. Yeah, that's real. You're not fake. Knowledge of the truth. And they walk away. Fall away from that. Turn their back like Esau, never embracing Christ by faith. Paul says, how can they be renewed? Or the writer of Hebrews says, how can they be renewed to repentance? It's impossible. They're guilty of the same kind of sin of those who crucified Christ. They heard of Christ. They saw the miracles of Christ. They saw the work of the Spirit in the lives of those around them. They experienced the power of the age to come. And they reject it all by crucifying Christ. You know what? In essence, they just simply said, intellectually we see it all. Intellectually we understand it all. And yet we reject it. When someone does that today, they're rejecting Christ in the same way as those that the writer of Hebrews was writing about. And to reject Christ is to say that Christ and the crucifixion, that it was justified, that Christ deserved it, that he got what was coming. That's what it's to say. And that shames the name of Christ before men because it says he was worthless. It says that his death was insufficient for anything. It was insufficient for anything. Or in the words of Hebrews chapter 6, it puts him to open shame. Open shame. What can be done for such people? What can be done for someone like that? It's like someone who has terminal cancer who walks out of the doctor's office knowing the cancer treatment will fix them, knowing it will help them, knowing it will be their cure. And they say to the doctor, I don't want it. What can be done for them? Nothing. They're unsavable. They've rejected the only one who could save their soul. It's impossible to bring them to repentance. Impossible. You didn't think we'd find that word in the Bible, but it's there. 
We always say nothing's impossible with God. It's true. Nothing's impossible with God, but this person can't be brought to repentance because they've thrown out the only thing that would save them. That's impossible. They've rejected the Word of God. They've rejected the people of God. They've rejected the Spirit of God. They've rejected God Himself, Christ. What else is there to save them? They've refused it all. It's impossible. And you say, well, how can you be right? Well, verses 7 and 8 illustrate that point. Verses 7 and 8 illustrate it. Uses an agricultural illustration. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it. There's the grace of God. I let my rain fall upon the just and the unjust. The rain falls to the ground and it brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it was tilled. The ground is tilled, water falls, God's grace upon that, and they get blessing from God. There's food that comes up and nourishes the body, they take it in, right? That's the, that's the reality, that's the illustration here. God has, has rained down His blessing, He's given all that would help sustain for life, and, and you've tilled the ground, you've done the job, here it is, and God's grace upon you, and you receive the blessing in. That's the idea. And then verse 7 says, here's the illustration, right? Here's what it looks like. In the agricultural realm, it's the same in the spiritual realm. But, verse 8, if rain falls on the ground, that's the idea. If the ground goes and it doesn't drink the rain, the rain falls off and it just thorns and thistles produced, it's worthless. It's no blessing to anybody. It helps no one. Those who cultivate it get nothing from it. It's close to be cursed and it ends up just being burned. You see the contrast? You see the contrast? You have the gospel. Here's the gospel right there. A grace of God pouring into your life. You've seen the work of the Holy Spirit. You've seen people before your very eyes. You've heard the truth. And you're not drinking it in. You're unsavable if you reject. There's nothing else that will save you. Your life is just like the thorns and thistles. Water has poured on you from God and you've rejected it and now you're just good to be burned. Watch out. Watch out. The writer of Hebrews saying you're on the edge of faith. Watch out. You're right there. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. Embrace Jesus Christ. Embrace Jesus Christ. Don't put off the decision to embrace Christ when it all sounds so sweet. Don't do it. I plead with you, please, with all your doubts, all of your misgivings, all of your misunderstandings, all the things that you'll never be understand until you know Him. All of those things that confuse you because you don't know Him. All those things that you'll understand only when you do know Him. I plead with you, come to Jesus Christ. If you don't, you'll get to the place where you're so hard that it's impossible to save you. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in verse 9, But, beloved, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. (laughs) 
things that accompany salvation. Though I'm speaking in this way. The desire of the writer of Hebrews is our desire today. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Stop rejecting. Stop rejecting Christ. Would you pray with me as we prepare for communion? Father, I don't know, Lord, if you're going to save anybody. I know you promised to save. We thank you for saving those who have embraced Jesus Christ. The heart is hard. Sin is so blinding. The gospel sounds so foolish to ears that only hear the things of dead men. Oh, Lord, we plead with you. Open the ears of us today here that we would hear. And not just hear, but that we would heed. Heed these words and not reject. Because today is the day of salvation for all who would believe. Thank you for the gospel, for it is the power of you to save all who would believe. Thank you for providing a sufficient sacrifice in Jesus Christ, knowing that we have nothing in ourselves that would be acceptable to you, no spiritual way in which we are acceptable by our efforts. You require perfection. To violate it in any kind of way is to be guilty of it all, guilty of eternal death forever and ever and ever, and yet you made a way. You made a way through Jesus Christ. And all you command for us is that we believe, turn from our own ways, believe upon Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice is sufficient for our sin. Believe and walk by faith. Lord, I trust that there would be those here who do not know you who would embrace Christ today. For your glory and your honor alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.